Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! From the second floor of the AC building, it's election shock therapy. We're back. We're here. It's fall. Bust out the pumpkin spice. It's time to talk Supreme Court nominations. <laughs> You know, it's good that we can actually say that it's fall here because uh, I was talking to my family who are in Ohio, which is not particularly southern, and they've had 80 degrees for the last, I don't know, two that or three weeks. That is the same slogan, Ohio. Not, not particularly, particularly southern. southern. Yeah. It's, it's also a, not particularly northern. No. Not particularly it's kind of anything. Bermuda Triangle of the continent Now stop US. that. Stop that. Well, no, but no one, yeah, no one really receives them. I mean, they're like kind of Midwestern. They're not particularly southern. I mean. Not northern. Like what is the state slogan of Ohio? Not particularly southern. Uh, it's right. just changed recently, didn't it? Isn't it it's like the heart of it all now? It's, it's Ohio, the heart of it all. The heart of it all, yeah. It's like Indiana, crossroads of America, which always disturbed me when I lived there. Cause like, it sounds like you're trying to get somewhere else. Right. <laughs> right. Like, you don't want to no, be here. Who, you wish you were elsewhere. Who do you meet at the crossroads? Which right? I like The Indiana, devil. Yeah. The <laughs> devil. Oh, wow. wow. That just got dark. recently just Man. arrived from Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> When I was when I was uh, first went to Indiana University, actually, they uh, there, there was actually a discussion that Ohio didn't belong in the Midwest. So yeah, there was, there was actually this big push to say that Ohio wasn't actually Midwestern. Which I don't know. I'm sympathetic I, to that argument. Uh, this is very <laughs> on brand for us, but there, uh, 538 did a study of what is the Midwest, wow, yeah, and they had would. people from the Midwest classify what the Midwest is, and then they controlled. And nobody, from, and surely nobody. Really thought new. of Ohio. As Ohio is significantly more Midwestern than Pennsylvania, so that seems... For sure. Oh, hold yeah, on, yeah. hold on, hold on, hold on. But it's also more Midwestern than Nebraska. Mm. Yeah, I'll buy that. I don't yeah. consider Nebraska. Okay. The, the most Midwest. Midwestern state is is Indiana. Yay, Crossroads of um, America. Is that true? Do you think? <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm from Ohio. I'm also from Western Ohio, and I would say that there is something that oh, happens. Oh, excuse me. Hold on. Hold on. Western hold on. Ohio. Hold on. <laughs> it's a key distinction. <laughs> it is because there, there, yeah. are, there are a couple of boundary shifts that I think occur. I think Ohio is liminal in some kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. Western Ohio absolutely is is Midwestern. Yeah. Eastern Ohio, sort of the Cleveland area, they like to think of themselves as the last outpost of the East Coast. Yeah. They're wrong, right? But that's uh, what they There's think. a vast Gulf of Pennsylvania that Divides them from the East Coast, but they're but so, that's how they like to think. So of Indiana, though, is you think the quintessential Midwest? I mean, who's more quintessentially Midwest than Michigan? Iowa? I feel like I feel like mm. when we talk about Midwest in terms yeah, of yeah, like, right there, like value, the other ones I'd name values or what that means culturally. But, I would argue it's like Iowa. A, I mean, Indiana has that mix, I think, a little bit more right. than Iowa. But, yeah, Indiana and Iowa would be the, my top two candidates. Okay. I mean, Illinois, not so much because of Chicago. No, Chicago Illinois, yeah. messes up um, that. The upper Midwest has a little, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota is different. Um, and the Mich Michigan, Michigan and Ohio, to me, are kind of on the edges of it. So, um, yeah. We didn't actually do a roll call. I know. We so should do a roll call. We're across the hallway from my office, but I'm Chris Moore. And joining me in the... <laughs> you're still Chris Moore when you're not in your office? <laughs> yes, actually I am. I, it's not gonna, it's not gonna, I, did, I assume only in the confines of my office. Like, yes. I'm only super... No one deaths death only, like Chris Moore as your office door probably... Now that's a weird thing to say without some context. <laughs> it's on your office door, Moore. I did not put it there. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> 
Um, if you want some explanation for that, why don't you stop by uh, Bethel um, sometime soon and check out my office door and your That's office right. door, Dr. Crumb's office door. And joining us today is Dr. Popinga. Yeah. Um, from across the hall. <laughs> across the, Far across the away. And, a, and across the in, uh, disciplinary divide. Yeah, and kind of the here. resident, the resident yeah. lady down in the <laughs> corner. Resident lady. Well, it's the truth, well, right? Know, it's Diana Magnuson. Diana, Diana Magnuson. Yes. Amory Quister. Amory is on sabbatical. Amory is, but, you know, it, right. office between mine and Amy's is vacant at the moment. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can see all a couple of announcements. You can see all of our office doors and speak to us also. Many of us uh, this Saturday, uh, we're going to be here for homecoming. So a lot of people will be coming back in, alums and, and so forth. Uh, before you see the four and uh, Bethel Royals take on the four and Saint John. What is Saint John? They're also four and yeah, but what's their mascot? Oh, the, um, the Johnnies. The Johnnies. Yeah. The okay. So the Royals versus the Johnnies. <laughs> we shouldn't go too um, deep on that. One. Uh, well, the, the, so uh, at my, my my wife's alma mater for for high school was Johnstown, and they were the Johnstown Johnnies. So that makes sense for them because it's the Johnstown. Saint, the Saint John's Johnnies. Oh, Saint John's Johnnies. Okay. Okay. I mean, it sort of makes sense, but it's also sort of yeah. tremendously un- unimaginative. Yeah. Like, so yeah. that's would really you prefer, all you like, the St. John's Apostles? Or, like, uh, the, actually, the, Bethel 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 the Bethel Betties? Bethel oh. Betties? The Bethel Betties. Oh, the Bethel Betties. Oh, there we go. The Bethel Bed Buddies. Oh, that, no. <laughs> no. Wow. No. It's no. Tuesday morning. It's Tuesday morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Save that for your Saturday podcast. I'm, I'm right, trying to get my plug right. out here. Sam said to plug this. Yes, Saturday. If you like election shock therapy and you are in the area and you want to see us live and actually ask us questions live, we're going to be doing a podcast on Saturday from the li- Bethel Library at 9.30 in the morning. It's free and open to the public. There's free and coffee, I think. I'm sure there will be hope s- there will be snacks. There might even be Bethel swag. We'll, we're, fine. we're working on that. Oh. And we're going to be talking about the midterm <laughs> elections. I think it might be in now. There's I will swag. be in Michigan at a conference. <laughs> You sure you don't want to come back to Bethel Swag? Uh, uh, Dr. Gertz and I are presenting at the um, Christian Council of American Historians conference at Calvin. Calvin. Nice. Are you staying at the Print Center? We are. I've never been there. I stayed there last year. I'm excited about it. (laughs) It's pretty nice. (laughs) No, I mean, it's it's convenient. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very handy. Yep, yep. Yeah, super handy. You can go back to your room between, you know, meetings. I like that. Skip skip (laughs) sessions altogether if you want to. That's a thing, too. Well, you have tuned in to Conference Talk. (laughs) (laughs) I'm your host, Chris Moore. This is Election Shock Therapy, and I'm because, <laughs> back on track, Chris. because we're talking about the midterm elections on Saturday, I'm going to, I've called us together here today to talk about the other big uh, news story dominating um, American headlines, and that is, of course, that the, Atlanta Braves the are renego- back in the playoffs. You oh, st- wait. You stop that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That I was, my joke was going to be uh, <laughs> the renegotiation of NAFTA, well, there which oh, I'm yeah, super oh, excited yeah, to talk yes. about. Oh, yeah. But I don't think anybody. As else a Braves is. fan, I had to get my shot in yep. before we get eliminated. No, that was so. That was good. <laughs> um, no, we're here to talk about the uh, ongoing nomination travails of one Brett Kavanaugh. Yes. And. Yeah. Our goal, we've always said for election shock therapy, is not to just parrot the news or to become pundits. We think we'd be pretty poor pundits, but we think we're pretty decent political scientists, in this case, historians, too. <laughs> I was going to say, just mention. Okay. And, um, <laughs> if I think it teaches a course that t- counts as political That's science. Right. That's, That's, true. True. That's true. That's right. So, so you know. we want to talk a little bit about um, 
But I mean, How? nothing's happening in the Middle East. No, no, Middle so. East is really boring. Yeah. Well, actually, nothing goes on there. I, should, I know, but there's. <laughs> that's right. I'm the international relations guy. Like, I feel like we should. All right. Anyway. No, no, we'll talk. <laughs> Another time. <sighs> Brett Kavanaugh. Right. Uh, who is not Middle Eastern, as it turns out. No, but that would be Although one of the things that probably would negatively affect that may come up. That may come up soon. We don't know. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about. I have a couple questions for you all, but I want to review and, and ask the question uh, first. How unusual is this nomination process compared to other recent Supreme Court nominations? These are fairly rare things that we have, right. that we deal with in, in American society. Um, Donald Trump has nominated uh, two justices to the court. Barack Obama nominated, uh, nominated three, got yeah, two yeah, confirmed. Got two. Uh, yep. George W. Bush nominated uh, three got two confirmed. So these are relatively mm-hmm. rare events. They are accepted. I think that's interesting because in my children's lifetime, so my older son who's 12, mm-hmm. like he feels like this happens all the time mm-hmm. because in his 12 years, mm-hmm. do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. it, it, but, but agreed. I feel like when we, I'm older than everyone in here, I think, but when we all yeah. were growing up, oh, you and I are the, the same. Yeah, well, I'm, the same I'm age, yeah. three weeks older than you. But um, wow. but I remember Which that. she uses to cut in front of me in line. I right, yeah. 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 In the 80s, this was sort Whoa. of, I mean, 80s. you know, this was this felt like more of a rare occurrence than it has Absolutely. over the last 15 years, 12, 15 Absolutely. years. Absolutely. Yeah, we've yeah. seen a sea change in the court mm-hmm. in terms of. Um, the court has mm-hmm. gotten noticeably younger in the last decade, mm-hmm. uh, but that would not be hard. But right, yes, right. <laughs> right. I mean, there was one long stretch, right? Especially from from ninety four to five, where there was no change, right? So that that right. eleven years, right. that was unusual. Right. I mean, it doesn't usually go that long, so I think that's one of the reasons this feels like there's now a lot of turnover. Yeah. Um, but it's still on average. I mean, I think we, you know, we get about one nominee on average uh, about every four years, a, three to four yeah. years, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So holding that, so using our recent nominations as comparisons, is Kavanaugh, is this normal politics? Is this abnormal politics? I think it depends on what part you're looking at. I mean, part <laughs> of, so on the one hand, in terms of the normal, to sort of make the pitch for the normalness of some of this, is the, uh, basically the confirmation hearings have become increasingly sort of heated and politicized. So yep. in that sense, you know, the fact that this was heated and politicized is not something that's sort of coming just out of the blue. It's the new normal. It's, it's the, the new, new normal, normal exactly. For a role that yeah. historically has not been right. about political party. Right, that's exactly right. Um, and so and so in some sense, you know, you could just sort of chalk some of this up to just say, well, this is this is the way we do this now, right? We've politicized the the, the court and so therefore we have this, you know, this heated angry process where, you know, the opposition party essentially accuses the, you know, the the appointee of everything terrible under the sun. I mean, this right. is the way it's been for the, you know, <laughs> for the last 20 years. And, uh, and and the other party defends them. Um, although what what has changed, and this has sort of been a slow uh, process, is you is you see votes becoming more and more on party line. It used to be, even mm-hmm. though the process would be heated, you would still see a lot of bipartisanship right. in terms of the actual vote in the end. Um, that has declined um, over right. time. Um, and then the other part that that seems relatively and you know normal more more uh, lately here. Uh, is that is that essentially you see 
someone appointed to the court who clearly, uh, you know, f- fits a certain political agenda. Um, and that's, that's once again, I mean, Kavanaugh clearly has particular leanings. He was appointed for those leanings. And that's increasingly also been um, a guiding aspect of the court. So it's no surprise that Kavanaugh, um, you know, has been selected because he has, uh, you know, relatively clear ties to conservative politics and conservative, right. uh, you know, positions and his place in the Federalist Society, et cetera. So, and you can point to specific cases that that demonstrate this clear commitment to certain yeah. ideology that's conservative, right. as yep. opposed right. to you think about somebody like, I don't know, like Sandra Day O'Connor mm-hmm. or something sure. where yeah, how much has changed since that right. nomination and right. I mean, confirmation. You, yeah, you think back, like, I mean, so you had Sandra Day O'Connor, you had Anthony Kennedy, of course, who's a, who's a um, retiring now, who's being replaced by Kavanaugh, potentially, um, who is more moderate. But, you know, like, you think back even a few years before that, I mean, like, a number of the nominees were, you know, they, they didn't fit neatly into these partisan right. boxes. I mean, Harry Blackman, who uh, authors Roe versus Wade, is a Nixon appointee. Nixon's mm-hmm. relatively more conservative, right? Um, Byron White, who is the John F. Kennedy nominee, relatively more liberal president, um, is on, you know, the kind of the pro-life side on some of these cases prominently, right? So it wasn't as clear before that you had sort of this, you know, if you're appointed by a Democrat, you're going to be very liberal. If you're appointed by a Republican, you're going to be very conservative. They're trying to find highly qualified judges. And now it's much more about highly qualified judges who also fit who very particular the, criteria. Yeah. And both sides have gotten very continuum curious. of commitment. Yeah. To yeah, you don't want to have any more. I mean, like, sort of the rallying cry in the, in the Republican Party, for example, is no more David Souters, right? It was the, right. the yeah. last of these people, I would say, who got appointed who did not fit the right ideological box for the party that appointed him. And they both become very determined not to do that again. And so what you have essentially is, you know, you know, right now, not counting Kavanaugh, obviously, four conservative judges appointed by Republican presidents mm-hmm. and four liberal judges appointed by um, Democratic presidents, right? Yep. And they've all been pretty predictable um, where they fit. John Roberts, a little less so. There's a couple of reasons for that, too. We've moved towards a greater sense of uh, uh, there's been a greater acuity mm-hmm. in terms of understanding where judges are likely to land in, right. their, um, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, in their ideological predispositions. I have to put a couple of things out. You mentioned Byron White and you mentioned um, uh, Blackman. Um, Blackman. Blackman. And I, uh, I have to just point out here, up until Richard Nixon's presidency, so only very recently, the most frequently occurring uh, vote outcome for a Supreme Court justice nomination was voice vote. Yep. Which means yep. that the vast majority of Supreme Court justices were just approved by a simple yeah. voice vote in the you Senate. debate them, really. Um, very little yeah. debate. This yeah. was sort of just perceived as the president has the right to nominate yep. these people. And, and their their track record and their resume demonstrates that they're capable right. for... Right, right, right. There are rare circumstances in which votes were actually held. In those cases, those votes were often contentious in some right. kind of way. But yeah. starting, uh, um, starting with uh, Richard Nixon's presidency, and Richard Nixon got to appoint six Supreme Court justices. Now, they weren't all confirmed because yeah. um, several of them were defeated. Um, right. So four spots. Yeah. Blackman was actually the third nominee to actually, to actually replace Fortas's spot. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, because he appointed, like, I mean, and, and the very good reasons, I think, like, both the people he'd appointed were considered kind of not as qualified as they might be. Um, they both were kind of rated low by the Bar Association. Right. So. Yeah. But just to, just to review some recent and important Supreme Court justices, Sandra Day O'Connor was confirmed 99 to nothing. Antonin Scalia was confirmed 98 to nothing uh, mm-hmm. for a long time, the most conservative justice on the bench. Right. Right. Uh, Anthony Kennedy was confirmed 97 to nothing. David Souter was confirmed 90 to 9. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, by all kinds, one of the most liberal justices on the bench, was confirmed 96 to 3. So mm-hmm. we have a recent history 
of very lopsided confirmation votes. But the last few, let's just take a look at this. Samuel Alito, uh, George Bush's uh, appointee to replace Senator Day O'Connor, 58 to 42. Sonia Sotomayor, 68 to 31. Wow. Elena Kagan, 63 to 37. And Neil Gorsuch, just uh, um, Donald Trump's first appointee, uh, 54-45. Yeah, that's... So the Senate is becoming more polarized. That's yep. also because we have we have some some handy heuristics for figuring out how set, how justices are going to vote more reliably over time right. too. Yep. And it was I think it was Eisenhower, wasn't it, Mitch, that famously said that I made two big mistakes in my presidency, and they're both sitting on the court. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that sounds yeah. So, what do what do pre, what does a good president do to figure out uh, what kind of person to pick for the court? Uh, well, I mean, the most obvious is read their previous decisions, assuming they, they have them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can kind of get a sense of what their judicial philosophy is and where, um, you know, basically you, you want to kind of see how do they think, what, what, what do they think their role is in terms of ter- interpreting the Constitution? How do, they, right. how do they go about that? What do they think um, is the proper way to, to, to go about understanding the text? And, you know, part of what has, and again, this is, this is sort of... Um, Scrutinizing this has become a more uh, again as a slightly more recent thing, but you know, but there have become some several several very obvious camps. I mean, you have sort of um, uh, camps of of some form of originalism that essentially say, you know, you want to go back and you want to look at history, you want to look at mm-hmm. um, how this how the document was understood at the time it was written. You've got folks who argue uh, more on the lines of you know something along the lines of uh, the meaning of the words. What do the words themselves mean? Although so that's this a is textualism, rare, right? right? You get like a textualist approach, and then you have folks who have a more pragmatist approach. That say, what do these words essentially mean now? So you take mm-hmm. a word like, you know, cruel and unusual punishment, and you mm-hmm. say, I don't want to understand this, how it was understood 250 years ago. I want to think about what does cruel and unusual mean right now? What, mm-hmm. is, what, do, these, what do these words mean right now? What would, what would society understand to be cruel and unusual? Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, so, you know, so you kind of get these different, different approaches. Um, and, of course, all of them claim to be following, uh, you know, stare decisis and the mm-hmm. precedence of the court and things like I'm that. Sorry, could you define stare decisis? So stare decisis please? just means let the decision stand, and it's the pr- uh, Supreme Court principle that you basically look at past precedents to guide and shape um, future right. precedents. And so mm-hmm. basically stare decisis is sort of the one is, – is, is a – sort of the bedrock of the rule of law in terms of the Supreme Court, because essentially it says the Supreme Court justices are not allowed to just make things up out of thin air. They're supposed to follow previous law and be bound by that previous law, except for in exceptional circumstances where they determine that the previous law itself was fundamentally wrong. I mean, the classic example being Plessy versus Ferguson right. mm-hmm. being completely overturned in, in Brown versus Board of Education. Right. Um, but that's rare. Even in cases where the court eventually seems to think it's wrong, it almost never says so. It just allows precedents to build up that will eventually allow it to over, overwhelm, right, right. To overwhelm the right. previous precedent mm-hmm. so that they can uh, rule in, in, in different ways on future cases. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, so, so essentially, I mean, these kind of camps or these kinds of ways of looking at the Constitution have really um, come to define justices, I think, in ways that, that they didn't um, – maybe even, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. Um, And in some sense, I mean, this really sort of depends on your, and unfortunately it depends on your ideological interpretation of of why that's the case. Mm -hmm. Um, Justice Scalia famously argued that essentially the reason for that is that everyone used to, uh, he he argued that everyone used to at least tacitly at some level 
accept originalism and that this had eroded over time. And so mm -hmm. he felt like he was engaged in a course correction in the sense of returning to and attempting to get the court to return to originalism. Whereas other justices, uh, such as uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, have argued that, in fact, the court has always yeah. um, engaged in, a, in uh, a level of pragmatism. And that, in fact, if you look at pretty much every Supreme Court case, mm -hmm. you can find elements of pragmatism where people right. are reinterpreting the Constitution in light of contemporary problems and issues and definitions. Right. Um, there are strong arguments for both of these, and that's why we have sort of this, this division here that's not a clear um, winner on that. But I think just, just to say that the fact that you have these two camps so brightly defined now is part of the reason, but I think that leads back to the partisanship. Um, the reason that we've defined these two camps so brightly is partially because the court has become essentially another partisan arm of the, of the national government, which mm -hmm. is not traditionally how it's been perceived or how it's been... Um, understood, um, you know, that essentially the court was supposed to, you know, sort of use the three-ring political circus, right? You know, if you look at, go back to, if you go back to, if you go back to, you know, Schoolhouse Rock, you know, it's sort of the basic right. idea that we have of this, you know, the Supreme Court is supposed to interpret the Constitution. It's not right. supposed to be creating Reading new yeah. laws and ideas. Right. And and I think, you know, that, that sort of sense, even though, you know, we can sort of say, well, that's childish, right? We know that the court is more than that. On the other hand, it's important that the court has is at least somewhat removed. I mean, that right, was right. that's the that's in fact the intention of the the founders themselves that the court is removed from this partisan process. I mean, that's why mm -hmm. there are a couple of steps removed even from the electoral processes, yep. so that they hopefully aren't touched by this sort of right. partisanship. That they can do their jobs. They can essentially look at what does the law mean, what does the constitution yep. mean, and try to apply the rule of law in a way that's that's you know dispassionate mm -hmm. to the partisan mm -hmm. concerns of, of of people in America. Which mm -hmm. on the one hand, I mean, you know. I think part of the frustration with that for people on both sides of the aisle is that the court often rules in ways that people don't like. I mean, right, you, you right. get tons of rulings that, um, you know, that, 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 that a large swath of the population doesn't like, but that's kind of the point. I mean, you want mm -hmm. the court to be in a position where it can essentially apply laws in ways that, that you know, popular, popular opinion may not particularly like, but is consistent with what the laws themselves um, say. And yeah. so... Yeah. Uh, losing that is, is sort of an you know is is, right. is is kind of a dangerous potentially dangerous uh, loss you know you um, yeah I don't know I yeah, feel I mean, like I've been rambling yeah well a couple yeah. here's a couple of things to add in maybe one is I think it's important to keep the perspective. We tend to focus on the cases that are five four and that are really controversial and that divide us, right? Right. What's interesting about these? And then we read these, partisanship into them. We read yeah. partisanship. Like we're looking at it right. through that lens. And often they are on partisan lines right. along that conservative liberal divide. But it's important to you know a lot of the court cases are actually mm -hmm. much more complicated, right? That yeah. they will be nine to nothing or seven to yeah. two. Yep. They'll cut across these partisan divides. So it turns out that these really qualified judges and they are. All, all the eight people who are on the court, I think, are highly qualified for the positions they hold. Right. Um, they, you know, they will agree on a surprising right. amount of things, right? And so there are a number of things where the law is, yeah. you know, regardless of which of those, you know, kind of views you're taking of it, it actually leads you to the same conclusion, right? So I think right. what that is sometimes lost. I think one of the concerns about Kavanaugh, to kind of bring it back to him specifically, um, that I'm hearing on the Democratic side, which is a fair concern, I think, even if you're a supporter, is that he is more partisan in some ways. I mean, like, he's, he's mm -hmm. not just, you know, I think it's, it would be good to have somebody who actually had legislative experience, which he does not, uh, on the court. We haven't had somebody like that since O'Connor. But right. um, but he is someone who's been very involved in kind of the partisan wars on the Republican side. And this was much more true of him. Can you than say of, what you mean by that? Um, yeah. So this is more true of him, I'll just say, than of any of the other people that Trump was apparently considering, right? So what I mean by that is a couple of things. One is, I mean, he worked for Judge Starr during the, mm -hmm. this very sort of, it was perceived as a very partisan mm -hmm. process to mm -hmm. um, investigate ultimately um, attempt to impeach 
um, Bill Clinton, right, in the 90s. He also worked as um, part of the Bush administration in the 2000s, right, um, and was, you know, very involved, again, in the political process there. His nomination was held up for several years in the Senate, in part because he was seen as too sympathetic with executive power, one of the critiques being levied against him now, and too closely tied to the administration. And in fact, you know, Senator McConnell, the Republican majority leader, um, told the Trump administration this, that he's going to yeah, be a hardy, harder be a confirm mm-hmm. than yeah. any of the other people you're considering because yeah. he has so much partisan baggage, right? And that's mm-hmm. not perception. No, that's true. I mean, like, right. that's just, you know, yeah. that, that's reality. And so even if you're a supporter, I mean, I think it's important to note, like, the Republicans didn't have to make this this complicated. Um, I think, you know, Hardiman, Barrett, I mean, they would have had their challenges, right? Um, but they would have, in some ways, been a lot easier to confirm, so even why, absent so why these did ra- latest Trump, accusations. Maybe I'm asking you to read into the mind of Donald Trump here. Which I don't like to do. Um, <laughs> so why don't you spend some time in that space for uh, us? Why, um, I have enough problems. Why, if you don't mind, I'll wait outside. Why did the, why did the Trump administration select Kavanaugh instead of Hardiman or, or Amy Coney Barrett? Um, I'll, I'll give two reasons, and maybe Mitch wants to jump in here, too, that I think, I'm, and again, I'm speculating on the mind of Donald Trump, which is a dangerous <laughs> thing. But um, two things I think pop out. One is this president is very enamored with um, people who have the right credentials, Ivy League credentials. And mm-hmm. Kavanaugh has the sort of most pristine resume in this regard. He's yet another Yale law grad will be on the Supreme Court. Supreme Court justices only come from two, from two schools. Yale and Harvard. Yale and Harvard. The, they're the only schools apparently qualified to produce Supreme Court judges, which I find which deeply irritating. Stanford. <laughs> Among others, right? <laughs> right. Um, there's a lot of schools that should be annoyed. Um, but yes, yeah, Stanford in particular, since they're actually ranked higher than Harvard um, in the <laughs> law school rankings. So that's one reason. I think it's that sort of Ivy League credentials. He was more pristine than the others in that regard. Um, I then will be skeptical of Trump's intentions here, as Democrats are being, and say that his Kavanaugh's support of executive power, um, his extreme sympathy for it, is perhaps another reason why. You might think about him. He he meets those conservative credentials, and he's much more clearly supportive of executive power um, than some of the other people Mm -hmm. he might have chosen, and that might matter to the president. Yeah, I think the only other one, and this has uh, been sort of again, this is uh, you have to take all the, all of it with a grain of salt. But I mean, there's some <laughs> reports, right, that actually Kennedy himself um, recommended right. Kavanaugh um, yeah. to Trump, and so because he was a clerk for he was a, he was mm-hmm. he was a key and clerk that's under one of the things that flies under the radar on these confirmation processes. And it's kind of weird. How how interrelated a lot of these yeah, justices are yeah, in terms right. of their working relationships. Right. There's a lot of clerkships. Um, yeah. Kavanaugh clerk for. Kennedy, yep. but he also is connected to people like Kagan and Sotomayor on the on mm-hmm. the liberal side. That's right. Yep. Right. Yeah. It's complicated. So, well, especially um, when you're only dealing with two law schools, right? There's going to be a schools. lot of yeah. interaction. There's, right. there's a lot of I mean, whether someone's a, someone else's. Which I'll just say, like I think one of the things that's frustrating me about court appointments from both sides is that I mean we desperately need to get out of the Yale and Harvard nexus, and we also need to get more diversity on other fronts. I mean, I think we've you know like. Certainly some more ethnic diversity would be good, but also just some more, like, religious diversity. Um, we've been very into appointing Catholics. And I have nothing against Catholic judges, but everybody on the court, with the exception of Gorsuch, and this would include Kavanaugh if he gets confirmed, is either Catholic or Jewish, right? And mm-hmm. and there's nothing bad about that as such. But when you think about the country as a whole, it's kind of weird, right? Because the very large majority of this country is not either Catholic or Jewish, right? And it would be good to get a little bit more diversity. So it's weird that we keep appointing judges with that same kind of Profile. I mean, Gorsuch was the first non either of those categories, even he has sort of Catholic background, um, since John Paul Stevens. Mm. Um, and it hasn't been since John Paul Stevens that we've had anybody other than a Harvard or Yale guy on. So that's weird. Though, to, to Mitch's point, uh, depending on what school of thought you enter the, the court with, your personal background either is 
relevant or not relevant, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're simply a machine that is designed to best elucidate right. Right. Yeah. what the original text right. means or what the original, what the founding fathers yeah. were thinking, yeah. um, then uh, your personal, you yeah. know, your personal characteristics are almost irrelevant. You could, you're, right. you're just, right. you're just an umpire calling balls and strikes. Right. But if you are trying, if, right. if we're trying to, that rep- is the analogy. <laughs> if, but if we're trying to represent society in some kind of way, then yes, diversity matters and representation of the American society at large matters. Mm-hmm. And the court does not reflect that right now. And it turns out umpires don't always call balls, balls and strikes the same way, as I would remember from the 97 playoff game against the Marlins. We won't go <laughs> he has there. baseball in the brain right say, now. And as a mom yeah. of a little leaguer. Yeah. As a mom of a little leaguer, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's very frustrating when they don't call it right. right. <laughs> <laughs> there are the ones with a really big strike. You know what? I'll take a strike zone I can know and understand over one that's unpredictable. I know, right? <laughs> okay, so I want to I throw out um, some recent Supreme Court controversies. And I'm going to give the two-sentence version of these. Right. So just hang with me here for a second. Wait, Brett Kavanaugh is currently embroiled. Uh, in a controversy, uh, there's allegations uh, which are all over the news, which I'm not going to completely recapitulate here, but Thank you. Um, but um, <laughs> multiple accusations of um, sexual assault um, uh, and, um, un- and in, re- in related ways, um, excessive drinking, which one precipitated the, the other. Um, also... Um, the second controversy, a uh, very different kind of controversy, um, uh, Antonin Scalia died while in office and died under the administration of Barack Obama, but close, close-ish to the uh, 2016 close. presidential election. Uh, Merrick Garland was nominated to replace him, and the Senate refused to hear that nomination process. Mm-hmm. Um, next controversy, Harriet Myers, under George W. Bush, uh, was nominated to replace Sandra Day O'Connor, and after a fairly disastrous rollout of her nomination process, right. uh, she withdrew. Yeah. Last controversy. Um, going all the way back to, uh, well, actually, let's do two more. Um, Clarence Thomas was nominated under George H.W. Bush. Yes, let's not. Um, <laughs> and that's the controversy that, 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 that uh, Kavanaugh has had the most parallels drawn to. Right. Accusations of sexual harassment made by um, Anita Hill. Um, his vote, he was ultimately confirmed by a very close and very party-line-oriented vote, 52 to 48. Although 11 Democrats who were part of the 52, which is interesting. They could have stopped it. They could have stopped it and didn't. And that's been interesting for them. I think they would have today. But. And the last Supreme Court justice to be rejected, that is to go up for a vote and be voted down, was under Ronald Reagan and was Robert Bork. Um, and he lost 42 to 58. Right. And so are there parallels? Are there analogies? The Clarence Thomas one seems to be the most obvious. But are there other things to learn about these Supreme Court controversies that inform what we can learn, say, as political scientists about uh, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination? I mean, I think the Thomas one is most obviously parallel because of the yeah. you have the same kind of accusations. You have the same kind of lining up on. I mean, they're different accusations, right? Yeah. Thomas's were sexual harassment. Kavanaugh was being accused of sexual assault. Thomas's were workplace, and he was a workplace an, more an recent. Adult, There's more a recent. power dynamic yeah. involved. Kavanaugh was a you know by the account is, was a drunken teenager, right? Um, which again doesn't excuse it, but it is a different context, right? So, um, but but in the same. They're similar in the sense that you get both parties, by and large, lining up and kind of backing their guy, right, or their, the person they agree with more, uh, whether it's the accuser or the accused, right, um, and similar kind of partisan lineups. Um, 
Bork is parallel in the sense that, I mean, if you buy the Republican case about what's going on with Kavanaugh, which is you're trying to find a way to beat a nominee that you super don't like ideologically, right? Now, in the Bork situation, the, the Democrats had the majority. They could defeat him, and they did, in fact, and they got some Republican support for that as well. But, um, you know, so I guess there's some parallel. I don't think Harriet Myers parallels at all. Myers was an underqualified candidate um, who was viewed as sort of a personal lackey yeah. of the president. Um, and but frankly, like Kavanaugh Repu- in the sense that she's more partisan than the typical nominee. More par- yeah, more partisan, sure. but, I mean, very lightly qualified in The experience wasn't there. The experience was not there, and even Republicans were telling Bush, like, like what are this we doing is here? not such a great idea. Mm-hmm. You, you you have a lot of really good candidates that you could choose right. from. Why are you To me, that's her? kind of a right. non-controversial washout. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. no, Everyone's you know like, I mean? the president like, sort of just did not do, make right. a good decision on that. Although some have argued that it was a political move, right? Because the Senate, it's very politically costly for the Senate to vote down a Supreme Court nominee. So maybe he rolled her out knowing that she would be rejected. So that that then, yeah. See, I I feel like they give Bush a lot of savvy. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I I mean, I like many things about George W. Bush, but I think that. That, I think that level that, of that is, a, that is too, is beyond too much craftiness. I think George W. Bush was a much more straightforward kind of guy than that. Like that would be a very unusual episode <laughs> in the George W. Bush history. Yeah. A lot of strategy. <laughs> nice. I haven't heard that word in a while. Uh, I miss that word. <laughs> so but the, the other controversy, and I've Maybe you were getting to this one, but I mean, no, just, the, just 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 with Merrick Garland, yeah, um, you know, huge. this this has obviously poisoned the well. To oh, some yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. I think I, I think even though arguably, you know, if you if you want to sort of be five years old and point and say who started <laughs> it, right? I mean, the Democrats started it with Bork, right? I mean, you could sort oh, of yeah. say you know the controversies mm-hmm. over Supreme Court justice and the politicalization of the process arguably begins with with uh, with with the Bork with nominee, Bork, yeah. but it was clearly ramped up and brought to an absolutely poisonous level. Um, when the when the Republicans refused to even grant President yeah. Obama's uh, right. appointee a hearing, yeah. um, you know this was this was a complete Major violation of tradition. Yeah. Right, uh, there's been a long tradition, as we just talked about, of the Supreme Court yeah. being relatively re- removed from the partisan process. The Senate essentially always, you know, uh, deferring in many ways to the president yeah. on this, yeah. um, and essentially only pushing back when there was a clear, obvious reason, um, either from you know, just an extreme judicial philosophy or, a, you know, a, 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 you know, just an obvious lack of qualifications, neither of which were true in Garland's case. He was a relatively moderate. Even though he was clearly left-leaning, he was relatively moderate in terms of his judicial philosophy. Right, right. And uh, in addition to that, he was obviously qualified. Um, so, you know, so, so I think that's the other, you know, context for this, is yep. that both the Democrats yep. uh, feel that, you know, essentially the Republicans have erased any sort of levels of decorum and tradition yeah. from this from this process um and so you know essentially yeah i mean there's there's i think that's uh, also what's led to just the, the absolute mm-hmm. poison of, of and I, so I think i want to fill in just two events real quickly too the, in between bork in 87 and the republican refusal of garland in 2016 right one is um in in right after bush won re-election this actually involved kavanaugh as well right the democrats were kind of using the filibuster to block republican nominees of bush um the republicans were unhappy about this they were threatening to use what they called the nuclear option to get rid of the filibuster for judicial right. nominees yep. and you get a you got a group called the gang of 14 including people like john mccain on the republican side robert bird on the democratic side coming together and saying we're gonna we want to keep the filibuster we will let certain nominees through we won't let others through and we will yep. all agree to kind of vote against our parties where needed um, to make this happen. And so that was sort of a temporary detente, if you will, mm-hmm. right, forced by these 14 senators, almost all of whom are now gone um, from the Senate. And so 
that happened. And then in 2013, the Democrats, frustrated by a similar Republican intransigence about Obama's nominees, did remove the filibuster for yeah. all nominees for the courts except the Supreme Court, right? And mm-hmm. so then you get the Merrick Garland blockage in 2016, and then in 2017, the Republicans removing it. So it's, I mean, I think this is one of those cases where there's a lot of blame to go around on both sides. The most recent sort of obvious blame falls on the Republicans, but um, there's been a number of steps, and both parties have, have you know, yeah. dumped their fair share of poison into the well that we are now dealing with. So is this, uh, are we now in a, in a um, event horizon, a black hole for the Supreme Court? Will the Supreme Court continue ineluctably to become more partisan and more divisive? I think, I, so, th- and this is just, you know, I, th- I, th- I think if there's, if there's there's sort of like a bright ray of hope for the court. <laughs> yes, please. Um, uh, I think it actually is John Roberts, the current uh, 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 Chief Justice. And the reason for that is Roberts has essentially stated, and his uh, voting record has borne out, that he his goal for the court is to essentially extract it from political controversy. Um, so essentially, Roberts has explicitly tried to make the court less relevant and less um, politically salient in a number of ways. So one of the ways that this was, uh, you know, most obvious um, and that that very much angered Republicans was that he essentially voted to uphold uh, the Affordable Care Act, saying that this was right. essentially, uh, you know, this was a legislative action. You know, maybe you could make an argument. You know, he, he actually says, right, maybe you could make an argument against it, um, which he kind of seems to buy in his opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he essentially in the end decides but this is still kind of a political question. This isn't something the court should decide. And so right. we're going to bow out. We're not mm-hmm. going to overturn this. And that kind of action, um, while on the one hand, you know, basically means that the court is not an actor, you know, in, in favor of certain political agendas, um, it also means that the court is, if Roberts is successful, will essentially, you know, move away from being this uh, sort of political football that we've seen. And perhaps we'll have a chance to move back towards sort of the more moderating um, and less directly partisan role that, that it's historically held. Um, so I think I think I think that you know if Roberts is successful, if he's able to sort of shepherd the court in that direction, which actually he has positioned you know and given the partisanship of the justices on the court, and and the you know sort of the ideologies, he's actually perfectly positioned to do this, right. um, because if you have four uh, left leaning. Uh, Democratic appointees, and then you have four right-leaning Republican appointees. He's the fifth vote, so he can essentially, you know, basically send the court in whatever yeah. direction yeah. Um, that he that he wants to go. And so, Is the I think, implication of that that John Roberts might be the most powerful Chief Justice in recent history. I think there's yeah, there's and uh, several people I've seen have made that argument. I think that's definitely true. Um, I think he be- sits. Uh, to potentially decide most of the major cases that are that, that that will come before the court, probably at least in the next five to ten years, um, unless unless Trump gets to a point, of course, a right for Ginsburg or Breyer, yes. both of whom are quite ad- aged, right? So, right. Um, so that's mildly. <laughs> I mean, eighty-five and eighty, right? So yes, you know, it's up there. Yep, absolutely. So yeah, so so you have the potential for that to push things one way or the other. Although, even if that were the case. Um, and 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 the split became more six, you know, or six five, three, five, five, three, one. However, you yeah. wanted to to, uh, to to sort of slice it. Um, there would it would still be the case that the chief justice, um, you know, generally has a lot has a lot of sway, right. and he could probably right. keep the court um, on a relatively moderate right. path if he yep. if he chose yep. to do so. Um, 
So yeah, so I think I think I think if we if we if we sort of have hope for this, you know, sort of again, this is sort of playing the long game <laughs> mm-hmm. because the parties have yeah. to sort of see that the court isn't going to play ball with, you know, being a political football, um, and you know, basically move on to other things. Um, right. So that may take a little bit, but uh, and I think it also it also sort of and maybe this is the less hopeful side. I mean, it also ultimately means that, you know, the American public has to sort of recapture this vision of, you know, the importance of the rule of law. You know, we have to begin to see, you know, that there's an importance to having a moderate uh, branch of the government that essentially is there simply to interpret what the laws mean and to apply them fairly and to sort of try to be, you know, you know, just in that sense of fair mindedness um, and, and, and dispassionateness. Um, that's not really a word, but <laughs> and, okay. and, and being dispassionate. We're in that area. Um, uh, but uh, uh, but yeah, but that's that's really been lost. I mean, I think most people, and, and you know, I think this applies to both Republicans and Democrats, have what they want to come out of the court, and unless that happens, they're 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 unhappy with the court. Um, and I think that's 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 sort of at the root of the problem in our democracy right now is this sort of loss of. Uh, that 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 desire to have the rule of law, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and I and I think you know just to sort of very quickly sort of note, I mean you know basically one of the one of the deep problems that philosophers have always noted with democracy is that it has this tendency towards injustice in yep. that it leads to sort of a mob rule. Right. You essentially in democracy you always have this tendency to say, well whatever the majority wants is what right. they're going to get, and if the majority wants you know so and so beheaded at the guillotine as right. in the French Revolution, then yep. so and so gets beheaded at the guillotine. Right. And you know that's democracy. Yeah. And that's and that's the way it works. Well, the people, um, and so the moderating effect then, and the way that the founders and many others um, who have created you know successful democracies have essentially said is we need a moderating force to essentially say what we want is laws that will fairly apply to everyone equally. And the way that that's borne out then that sort of rule of law that moderates democracy is uh, a dispassionate court um, and a dispassionate judiciary. And you know that that essentially has worked for us for the last you know 200 and you know mm-hmm. you know almost 250 years at this point um but you know i think that's under threat i think that's yep. you know we're, we're sort of at a at a place where uh, you know a lot of a lot of the american population no longer sort of feels that that's important they would rather have um you know the results they want immediately even if mm-hmm. that means the over overriding of the of, of the rule of law and that yeah. moderating force yeah that's sort of, it's all in play though <laughs> and I was just teaching, um, you know, just teaching the Republic in humanities, and we were talking about, you know, this very issue. I mean, this is where democracy goes, right? And so, and then, and then you get frustrated by the abuses of it, and you say, if only we had a strong person to enforce yeah, the good, whichever the good is, right? And, and then you're into tyranny, yeah. right? I don't think we're heading there yet, but but we better watch out. I mean, we, uh, you know, just because our system has protected us for years from this doesn't mean protected forever. I mean, we're losing a lot of that societal consensus that had bound us together. And um, and so then where does it go, right? And we get people, you know, quite literally yelling at each other in meetings and accusing each other of really bad motives on both sides, right? Um, it is it is deeply disturbing. Yeah. We are not uh, pundits and we are not um, criminal jurisprudence <laughs> or, uh, uh, scholars. So what we're not equipped to say in this room is um, much about the al- ongoing allegations of sexual impropriety and um, other um, uh, indiscretions of Brett Kavanaugh. Um, so I'm going to not put you guys on the hook and ask you whether you think he'll be confirmed or not. I think that has lots to do with what the FBI may or may not turn up over the right. next week. Yeah. What I do want to ask you is, in the wake of um, Clarence Thomas's confirmation in, in back in 1991, the right. following year, 1992, was 
was known as the Year of the Woman, which was a uh, term the media ascribed to that year. It also coincided with the election of Bill Clinton. Um, um, who is not a woman. Who is right. not a woman. Uh, but um, yeah, a, a, a large number of women um, successfully ran for Congress. Right. Um, including one Diane Feinstein. Including one Diane Feinstein. Um, will Kavanaugh's nomination process, whatever the outcome, um, lend additional energy to female candidates running for Congress this fall? I don't know. I, I would say it's possible, but I think that it um, we've, become, we've become much more polarized as a country since then. So I think it has a lot more to do with the level of energy on both sides. And I, I don't think it's going to help necessarily, like if this is a Democratic year and it is looking like a Democratic year, I don't think it helps Republican women particularly. Um, and if there are women running under the Democratic banner, then they're likely to do well. But I think the nomination process is largely set at this point. This is late. Um, so I think I think it has much more to do with which banner they're running under and where they're running. Um, there are a lot of women who have been nominated, so sure, and that's a narrative we could see come out. I'm, I'm skeptical that it has to do with the Kavanaugh nomination. I think okay. it's just other societal dynamics that are going on. Um, so if, if we if it ends up being the year of the women, and it it probably will be to some extent, right? I think that's somewhat incidental to Kavanaugh, not yeah. a result. Of it. And I think even building on that too, I mean the. Tr- it would be very di- difficult to disentangle sort of any any kind – if there were sort of a surge of, of, of women voters um, or voting for female candidates, it would be very difficult to disentangle so the Kavanaugh nomination right. from Trump himself, right. um, mm. who also has right. been seen right. as essentially hostile to, to women's interests. I was going to say, I don't know that you see you, – it's too late to see it in terms of people running, yeah. but I do actually think it will mobilize women voters. Mm. So yeah. that's yeah. Where, the, yeah. where the movement will be. Yeah, right. It's worth noting Kavanaugh is playing out in the in the court of public public opinion as well, right. and this is he is by most accounts one of the least popular nominees yeah. to be nominated for, sure. for the court for sure. yeah. um, in in modern history. Yeah. So, and I was connected to one other thing. If I could, real quick, just I yeah. think what what it does connect to is the Me Too movement, right? And the Me Too movement, I think, I mean, this is part of what's connected to why you know Kavanaugh is coming under such scrutiny, and the the nomination of the, this number of women candidates probably is connected to that somewhat. So I think there is some kind of connection, but. Yeah. I think I think about Kavanaugh more as what's happening with him as a result, not a like this is what's he's causing. Not a, he's not a prime elected. mover, right? Yeah, right. exactly. Well, by the next time we podcast, I think Saturday we'll, live. Be there. We might we <laughs> might know uh, the results of the FBI investigation, and if we don't, uh, we'll have lots to say about Minnesota local elections um, and the race for the House and the Senate. Um, join us if you can. If not, we'll be right here on your channel. Uh, thanks for listening to us. This has been Election Shock Therapy. You can always email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. And until next time, go Royals. Go Royals.